singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me make it better in one of several ways. You can leave a review on iTunes, you can leave a comment on YouTube, you can click the like button, or you can simply make a donation. As always, I will be the man with the questions, and today, my guest with the answers would be Stellark. Stellark is a world-renowned body installation visual artist who has pushed the boundaries with his performances for the last four decades. So, welcome to Singularity One-on-One, Stellark. Thanks, Nicola. I am very, very happy uh, to have you on this show. I have to admit that um, I remember in my master's degree, actually, um, I was looking at some of your uh, art, and uh, I have had you uh, on my uh, guest list, future guest list, ever since I started this show. So I'm finally, uh, now that you're finally here, I'm very happy about this. Excellent. Fantastic. So I think we're going to have a fantastic conversation. Let me ask you first, if you were to introduce yourself and what you do in a couple of sentences, how would you do it? What's the best way? Well, well, I guess uh, I'm best described as a performance artist um, who's interested in exploring alternate anatomical architectures you know, I've been fascinated by um, the sort of evolutionary structures of, you know, from humans to mammals to, to, to insects and how that those different architectures um, enable us to, to, to become aware and operate in the world in such different ways. So, um, yes, I, I've also been involved in, in installation work, uh, some interactive installations, but best described as a as a performance artist. So I guess as an artist, I'm interested in not only uh, speculating on on ideas, but uh, actually engineering an interface, uh, personally experiencing it, and thereby having something meaningful to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so so let me ask you this then. What was your first love? Was it art or was it technology? Because you kind of mixed the two of them in your performances. Well, I, I guess I, I, I discovered early on in art school that um, I was a bad painter. So becoming a performance artist wasn't really the <laughs> an option. I, I, I had to pursue that direction. But, you know, I, I was always envious of of dancers, singers, gymnasts, um, people who use their bodies not only as a, as a means of expression, but also as a mode of experience, experiencing directly their, their, uh, their ideas. Um, so that was the connection initially with the body and, and, and the interest and, 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 and envy of other bodies who could better express themselves, uh, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so can you tell us perhaps the story of how, uh, in a way, you 
you decided to extrude the, the physical body with your own performances. Is there a, a story behind that? And why? It, it seems to me kind of like your whole career is really focused on that. Well, there's always been an, an oscillation of concerns. Um, you know, we're increasingly expected to perform in mixed realities, um, where, where, where often, of course, purely biological bodies, um, increasingly augmented and accelerated by our machines and enhanced by our instruments. But increasingly also we're, 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 we're having to, to manage data streams in virtual systems. So, we have to kind of seamlessly slip between these modes of, of operation, between the, the, the biological, the machinic, and the virtual. And so those oscillations of concern have always been a part of, of my practice. So it's never simply been uh, a linear progress progression from the physically difficult to the technically complex, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, 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 to the virtual presence of, of, of the recent performances, um, and also not being constrained by a particular medium um, means that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm happily performing with a six-legged walking robot and then suspending my body using hooks into the skin, I mean, you discover aspects of, of your body that, that uh, you know, you wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, that, that's, that's fascinating. But to me, uh, what's really interesting to find out is like, I mean, it makes sense in a way to do what you do today in our current reality. And yet you were doing it since the late 70s, early 80s on a regular basis, so for 35, 40 years. So doing it today, I, I think, is kind of like almost obvious in, in the context of our reality, but doing it 40 years ago is, is like revolutionary. It's, it's visionary. So I'm, I'm very curious to find out how did you decide to con- make that connection in the 1970s? Yeah, well, actually, it was in the late 60s. <laughs> oh, wow. Maybe I'm showing my age or not showing it as, <laughs> as much. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, the first thing I made in art school uh, of significance for me were helmets and goggles that altered your binocular perception and, and an immersive, uh, rotating, interactive uh, environment for the body. Uh, so, you know, th- those works were done in the late 60s and th- there was, you know, there was not a, a kind of a, a deliberate strategy to go in any one direction. Uh, there was never a, a blueprint that I simply uh, realised. Rather, you had certain concerns. Uh, of course, there were bodily constraints. How do you extend and extrude? Um, the body uh, with technology and the internet. Uh, so that generated particular projects and performances and then iterations of those concerns uh, proliferated and, and uh, in a sense, rhizomatically generated these, these, uh, these more recent uh, works. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Let me ask you a little bit different question that may or may not be connected with this topic. Now, I think it was in, in the early 70s that you changed your name to Stellark. Why did you do that and what, what does Stellark stand for? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was actually since 1970, I think 72 was the year that the, that the name was legally changed. And in fact, recently I, I was uh, part of a, uh, uh, an exhibition uh, called Super Connect um, mm-hmm. in in Taiwan, and um, the curator there decided, well, you know, uh, I mean, I've always used uh, the, the name Stellark in in all of my communications with them, but uh, the the curator assumed that that hey, I had a real name, uh, found that out by maybe Googling or reading up uh, on books, and then sent me a, an airline ticket with the name Stellius Arcadio on it, <laughs> uh, a name that hasn't existed. And, um, you know, my passport, the name is ju- just Stellark, my credit cards, driver's license, uh, all of my ID, there's only one name on there, Stellark. Wow. And, in fact, I had that problem uh, uh, some years ago when an American curator did the same thing, and I turned up at the airport, and they wouldn't let me on the plane. My, my passport name didn't match the name on the ticket. So, you know, it, it's proved to be a problem, and here at the university, at Curtin University, um, they're insisting, uh, you know, in my designation online uh, that my name appears as Stellark Stellark. because they insist that they can't uh, fill their computer fields without first name. Um, And I tried to get this changed recently, and they're insisting that, um, yeah, it has to stay Stellark, Stellark. So, you know, if you telephone me and I say, hello, hello, uh, don't be surprised. <laughs> that's that's very interesting, but but going back to to the issue, why what what does it stand for, and why why change it in the first place? Yeah, it doesn't stand for anything really. It's it's really taking the first few letters of each name and uh, putting them together to make a, a shorter name. Uh, Stellius Arcadio is originally Greek. Uh, both my parents are from Cyprus, and um, but I grew up in Australia, and I had an urge early on in my sort of student life that uh, I needed to simplify my name. Everyone was shortening my name anyway, mm-hmm. uh, so I decided to legally do it. There's no particular meaning behind it, no significance. I really don't think in that way. Uh, it was uh, a somewhat pragmatic decision on my part uh, mm-hmm. just to make it easier on everyone, except um, in the last 15 years, it's been really difficult with, you know, the proliferation of, of, of computer technology and computer fields in with institutions and museums. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of shocked that First, you were able to change it only to one name instead of three names, <laughs> because I imagine nowadays in a world where basically computers dictate the the empty spaces that you need to fill in in order to do anything or get anywhere, I mean, does that say anything about our civilization that computers dictate, well, there's an empty 
blank, you know, form here that you're not, you haven't filled in, therefore we can't issue you a check or we can't issue you a ticket or whatever? Well, I think, I think it is symptomatic of our sort of computer and online existence. But, uh, um, I mean, you know, your ID signifiers, uh, of course, um, you know, have to fit in with the certain constraints of, 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 of computer sort of designations. But, I mean, of course, uh, that also results in um, being easily hacked as well and, mm-hmm. uh, and your ID stolen. Um, so, yeah, it, it is an interesting symptom of, of our... Mm-hmm. Of, our, of our um sort of programmed existence these days but you know it doesn't bother me uh, so much it's it's a nuisance value um uh, you know a, as our world is in, is is getting increasingly uh, complex uh you can't have complexity without constraints increasing constraints mm-hmm. uh so um if we want to live in a in a complex and and, and very information-rich domain of, of interactivity, we're going to have to expect, um, uh, you know, certain rules and regulations uh, within this terrain of operation that we have to function in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me throw in a couple of audience questions here. So, Khalil um, Kasem asks... I'm curious to know what inspires Stellark to create the robotic inventions often integrated in his performances. Well, um, it, I mean, initially it was prosthetic attachments to the body. So, uh, you know, do you accept the present biological status quo or perhaps, you know, does a third hand or an extra ear or a virtual arm uh, enable you, you know, to have some additional um, interactive capabilities. It's not about um, uh, improving the anatomical uh, kind of architecture of the body because I think that's just a, a value judgment anyway. But I think the idea of experiencing the alternate, experiencing the other, um, how other perceptual and operational architectures um, interact with the world. I mean, that that's what's interesting. But being also intrigued by insect and animal locomotion, um, then, for example, uh, performing with exoskeleton, the six-legged insect-like uh, robot a structure robust enough to support the artist's body, translating uh, the artist's bipedal gait into this uh, six-legged insect-like locomotion. Um, that in itself is both um, a formal and an anatomical um, uh, um, outcome of that particular performance. So that's the sort of general desire, really, to to experience alternate possibilities, uh, whether they be robotic, whether the, they they push the biological boundaries of the body. Uh, uh, that's also involved with, uh, uh, with this present project of um, surgically 
constructing and stem cell growing an ear on my arm. So all of these attempts have been uh, attempts at uh, actualizing ideas so that you can personally experience them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... Would it be fair to say that the goal of, of your work is to, as you said, expand sort of experience, expanded possibilities? Um, yes, w- without without using the kind of philosophically problematic um, sort of social engineering kinds of terminology of enhancement and improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, for example, a lot of, uh, interesting prosthetic interfaces, uh, are for differently enabled people, uh, for people who may have been, uh, 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 born with, with, uh, uh, genetic problems or, uh, have had some sort of traumatic, um, Accident, uh, catastrophic accident, and their bodies have, uh, you know, can't function the way they used to. They might, might be paralyzed. They might be blind. Of course, some people are quite uh, um, comfortable with their particular conditions. You know, mm-hmm. deaf people don't necessarily want to hear. Uh, blind people don't necessarily want to see. Uh, we don't necessarily have to normalize or what we consider. Uh, normal operational capabilities uh, with these differently enabled people. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, uh, yes, it's intriguing uh, that that this particular body might have an, an extra ear on its arm that it can hand over to other people that becomes a kind of a remote listening device for people in other places, this extra ear is not for my body. I mean, I've got two good ears to hear with. It's more, it's more a, a transmitting device. It's more a remote listening device for for others. So that's the sort of general kind of attitude that the, that the artist has. It's not about sort of eugenically enhancing or improving the human body or making value judgments about how that body might be improved. But certainly, uh, this body is, is, is willing to experience um, any kind of interface that provides uh, unexpected information and images, um, you know, to my cerebral cortex. <laughs> <laughs> Let me grab a couple of uh, words that you use there because they're highly interesting for me. Uh, because they're usually the words associated with transhumanism. So you said that uh, you're trying to experience expanded possibilities without those philosophically problematic value judgments of enhan- enhancement and improving, which, I, as I said, are usually associated with transhumanism. So I've seen often uh, people calling you a transhumanist artist, and yet I watched a couple of occasions where you yourself said that you're not a transhumanist. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about that interplay? <laughs> well, well, it's not that I, I'm, I'm unhappy that, that, uh, uh, that, that, say, people 
in the transhumanist um, um, movement, you might call it that, um, uh, relate to what I do and, and perhaps interpret it in ways uh, that um, sync with with their their their, their philosophical trajectory. Mm. On the other hand, uh, you know, as an individual artist who's not really uh, not really concerned about kind of dogmas or pursuing uh, you know particular beliefs. I, I mean, I think one always has to, has to be open to possibilities. Uh, rather than to be constrained by by particular positions uh, or directed by particular positions, that, that that's all. Uh, I think as artists, we're really in the business of generating contestable futures, possibilities that can be examined. Um, often these would be discarded. Sometimes they might be appropriated. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the general approach. But being isn't that open in a way? Possibilities. But in, isn't that in a way what uh, sort of improvement is all about, or progress is all about? You take uh, certain kinds of experiments, you test them, you see the results, and then you either discard or you adopt those, and then. It's a process of cumulative change, which basically each consequent change is, is built on top of the previous one. And that's an excellent um, way of articulating that, that uh, you know, what, what's happening. Uh, it's just when it becomes a political issue, it, it's a problem when it becomes a social engineering imperative. Um, I think we constantly have to factor contingency mm-hmm. into our speculations uh, rather than uh, 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 generate theories that are seemingly uh, uh, are about necessity. You know, uh, I mean, if, if you want to uh, uh, imagine a future, any future, you, you have to factor the un the unpredictable, otherwise it's not a future. <laughs> uh, the, the whole notion of what a future is is about the unpredictable, is, is about the contestable, is about contingency uh, rather than necessity. And, in fact, that's probably what determines our humanity as well, largely. But uh, I think the problem with, with any, any kind of... Um, specific uh, 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 pronouncements about the future, whether it's, whether it's to do with the transhumanists, whether it's in fact to do with uh, the singularity, these are all very seductive, mm-hmm. uh, undoubtedly most seductive, because often uh, there's uh, information, there's data that seemingly... Uh, 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 um, uh, substantiates those speculations, mm-hmm. and certainly some of those speculations will unfold into actualities, will collapse into actualities. Mm-hmm. But I see no necessity in anything happening, and in fact, even if you uh, 
consider our, our recent history, there there have been certain quite unexpected possibilities that that have resulted. Uh, um, for example, uh, 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 nanotechnology. You know, uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago, um, the speculations now generated by, by nanotechnology, nanofabrication, nanosensors, nanorobots, uh, uh, ju- just would not have been possible. Uh, uh, almost quite inconceivable. Um, technology which was always external to the body now can, can in fact recolonize the human body, uh, augmenting our bacterial and, and viral populations. What we need is more surveillance, but surveillance of the inside of our human bodies. And what nanosensors, what nanobots will do, um, will be to provide those early alert warning symptoms. Uh, at the moment, um, you know, uh, until you feel the lump in your chest, it's too late. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, at a cellular level, your body is probably detecting these pathological changes in chemistry and, and temperature and blockages in the circulatory system. Uh, unfortunately, though, the body can't always manage to overcome these. And um, so un- unless we have an early alert warning system that resides inside the body, in other words, can we rewire the body inside out? Can we redesign the human body atoms up? Uh, when we can do that, uh, then uh, that's going to be, I think, the best strategy for increasing the longevity of the body, for increasing the body's robustness, uh, for protecting the body against certain pathologies. But isn't that what um, transhumanism is all about? Well, it's, it's certainly uh, an aspect of transhumanism, and as I said, I'm quite comfortable uh, to, to, to be considered within that general um, realm of ideas, uh, but uh, I'm not a transhumanist in the sense that um, I'm propounding and philosophizing um, and politicizing and making transhumanism or or what or any other idea uh, one of political and social consequences such I think the best the best approach is that the individual um, has a choice and that and that is factored into any any future structures of uh, of, of, of redesigning the body. I mean, I think the body modification community is a, is a good model for this. Yeah, but I, I mean, what, what I'm trying to understand here is what part of, am I missing here, like, um, in the sense that I thought that transhumanism is really about personal choice. In other words, you can be a transhumanist and you can be an Amish if you choose so. And we can live side by side. So that's where the personal choice comes from. Do you think that's not a possibility or? I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I, I really don't. Um, I, I think, um, just as, 
there are lots of checks and balances in how how things come about. Um, and, uh, you know, the scientific community is a good model for that. It's not the only model, but it's a good model mm-hmm. uh, that uh, you can you can you can have any theory you want, um, but it's only a meaningful theory if that theory stands up to experiments by others and, and, and um, you know, their outcomes kind of match yours. Um, and if you can do this in a realm of contingency, um, in a realm of personal choice, that's fine. Having said that, having said that, um, Personal choice does not necessarily mean that I'm a proponent of free will in the traditional metaphysical sense. The more and more performances I do, the less and less I think I have a mind of my own, nor any mind at all in the traditional metaphysical sense. Uh-huh. In other words, you know, what you're looking at is a speaking uh, body, uh, a body that is responding to your queries, um, a body that is soft to the touch, a body that is aging, um, a body that uh, interacts and inhabits uh, certain institutions. Um, that's the that's what uh, you have before you. Uh, there is nothing inside this body. In, in, in the kind of, uh, in the kind of metaphysical, uh, way that, uh, that Platonic, Cartesian, and even Freudian constructs of the body have imagined. Uh, there's nothing. The only thing that's inside this body is the, is, is, is soft and squishy tissue, a circular, a circular, circulation system, a nervous system, uh, a neuronal machinery, that allows this body to interact with other bodies, you know, uh, in this language, in this particular uh, set of institutions, mm-hmm. culturally conditioned at this point in, in time in history, um, this is how this body is framed. This is how this body is constrained. So this body certainly has a choice, but this choice has to be understood within a much, a much more complex interactive system of other living things, instruments and machines, institutions and culture, and particular moments in our history. So in, in, in other words, you are an inherent, almost inseparable part of the environment you're, you, you are a part of. And, and yes, you, you may have some some choice, but it's within that context is kind of uh, perhaps more minor compared to the major interactivity of you and your environment and its impact on 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 that body. Yes, I mean I can I can imagine that I can pick up my cup of coffee now and and take a sip of it, and this is my choice in doing it. Uh, th- th- there's physiological reasons. I'm feeling thirsty. I'm feeling hungry. That might that might prompt me to do this. Um, also, uh, it's a, it's a sort of a, a situation that's been framed, 
by you sending me an, an email uh, and arranging uh, this Skype at this particular moment, mm-hmm. um, which prompted me to purchase this cup of coffee before I, I spoke to you because I probably wouldn't have had time afterwards and it wouldn't have been convenient. But anyway, you can see what I mean, that yes. uh, uh, the choice to take a, a sip of coffee now, um, you know, has a series of 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 uh, of, of of reasons uh, for for me doing so that that go beyond my my simplistic idea of of choosing to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's not belittling uh, the human. It's not uh, belittling um, our interactive moment of communication. It's just simply trying to understand that uh, these things happen for a complex and interactive set of reasons that go beyond this particular individual. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me go back a little bit here uh, and talk a little more about art. Um, perhaps I should start with uh, a paraphrase of a question by one of my uh, viewers, Jacob Orzwelski, uh, who said something of the sort, I don't want to be insulting, uh, <laughs> but why in the world is this called art? I mean, most <laughs> stuff that I can find on the internet by Stellark looks nothing like art. <laughs> <laughs> so what um, do you want to say to that? Yeah, no, look, look, I can understand that response. Um and one has to remember that, um, you know, just as I don't understand um, subatomic particle physics, I might have a general knowledge of it. I don't understand it. If you tell me that a quark has charm and has spin, uh, I can take your words literally, your description literally. I don't really understand that mm-hmm. from the point of view of physics. Mm-hmm. We don't expect that people who have not been trained in the arts, that are not knowledgeable in postmodern discourse, that aren't familiar with contemporary art practice, um, you know, could necessarily understand uh, that what uh, I do, for example, might, might be termed art. Well, firstly, to try to, un- uh, to try to explain that to, to your, to your listener, um, uh, you know, artistic expression, which often has been about, um, self-examination, say in the history of portraiture, um, the expression of ideals, uh, whether they're religious or philosophical, um, from from uh, the medieval to the Enlightenment period, um, different mediums of expression have been used by artists, and uh, you know from 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 uh, uh, f- from carving to casting to uh, ceramics to. Uh, oil painting to fresco painting um, uh, to the more contemporary uh, multimedia approaches of, of, 
that you find in installations. Um, and also, uh, say, with Jean uh, Tongli, uh, who earlier made um, machine sculptures, uh, mechanical kind of monsters that kind of uh, whirred and, and, and clicked and, and, uh, and uh, also uh, were, were, were kind of clumsy drawing machines, uh, to now artists who are using artificial intelligence, that are using state-of-the-art robotics, that are using uh, the internet, um, uh, that are using uh, surgical techniques, that are using tissue engineering, these are the contemporary uh, mediums of expression that artists are using. And why should artists be interested in using uh, these uh, new mediums of expression? Because they generate new performative experiences, because they generate uh, new information and unexpected images of the human body. So, for example, an, a, an MRI scan, you know, you can have cross-sectional images of the human body. You can inspect a living body anatomically in ways that you couldn't inspect it before. Uh, so previously you would have to be a dead body to be dissected. <laughs> Uh, and 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 uh, and for people to see a cross-sectional uh, uh, image of your of your body. Uh, now, of course, we can do this electronically, non-evasively, uh, in non-harmful ways. And, and and this is interesting. I mean, in the near future, of course, and this is already happening uh, uh, with stem cell growing. Of, of organs or the possibility of stem cell growing organs, of the possibility of bioprinting organs. I mean, we'll be able to replace malfunctioning parts of our bodies much more easily. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be better, though, if we had a more modular design of this <laughs> analog body to more easily replace malfunctioning components. <laughs> but um, th that's, an, that's another uh, uh, issue in terms of our, of our anatomical architecture. But, you know, that would be my, my, my question. Of course, that doesn't necessarily make it interesting art. It doesn't necessarily make it good art that you're simply using artificial intelligence or tissue engineering as your medium of expression. But... Artists are very curious creatures and they will adopt technologies and look at virtual reality, for example, as well. Mm -hmm. You know, where you can construct and artists have constructed immersive artificial virtual, uh, 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 spaces that other people can navigate and that other people can experience. And so why paint uh, you know, uh, an oil painting, which is a flat image that's stuck on a screen with limited interactivity, when you can engineer a virtually immersive uh, 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 online space, for example, in Second Life, where you as your avatar can visit and, and uh, experience a three-dimensional um, artificial world. Mm -hmm. um, so, another cotangent, perhaps, angle on this would be 
sort of the shock factor, if there is any, intended or unintended, or or what some people even call the creep factor. I was discussing <laughs> some of your work with a friend of mine, and I showed I showed them some of the suspension performances, and they were like, "Oh my God, this is creeping me out a little bit." <laughs> so, is that a sort of a byproduct, or is that intended to sort of shock and and surprise? Yeah. Well, I, I can't speak about about other artists, and, and uh, I, I think one has to recognise that that some art is messy, some art is pornographic, some art is shocking, some art is traumatic, mm-hmm. some art, on the other hand, is minimal. <laughs> Some art is conceptual. Um, some art is body art. Now, the problem with body art, of course, is that if you have a challenging idea to actualize that, uh, sometimes uh, means that you have to undergo physical difficulty. Uh, I mean, I can have an idea of suspending my body, but then this body has to endure 18 hooks stuck into its skin. It has to support it's 68 kilogram body weight uh, for a certain time in, in trying circumstances on an outcrop of rocks 300 metres from shore uh, at the seaside, uh, 300 metres, uh, I'm sorry, 30 metres uh, a high suspended from a giant crane. Um, anyway, you, you, you get the idea. So... So, uh, yes, some of these performances have been difficult. Um, but, uh, the, the sort of creepy factor or the, uh, actually, uh, brings up, uh, this idea of the uncanny valley in robotics. Mm-hmm. Because as we, as we engineer increasingly more human-like robots, um, then they seemingly become Creepy. Um, in other words, um, you know, just as you get them to, to look more and more human. So initially they're seductively human-like in appearance, but then if they respond somewhat asynchronously, if they develop a repetitive twitch, um, if, if they don't quite understand what you've said, then actually the human-like, increasingly human-like appearance can in fact be quickly undermined and you have this uncanny valley, this, this moment of, of creepiness that, 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 that results. My, my answer to that is, well, this might result in a creepy robot, but I also, you know, know a lot of creepy people too. <laughs> Humans can be equally creepy. Um, as, as your, as your, uh, listener kind of alluded to. Um, so, but I think this creepiness might be the result of, uh, lack of comp- comprehension about the circumstance and situation, uh, the lack of technical sophistication, uh, which might, uh, be the result of, uh, of, of, um, you know, the inability at this point in time in our technology to fully engineer a synchronous and, 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 and completely human, uh, simulation of, 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 of a, of a body. Um, so 
I don't, I don't take offence to that. On the other hand, uh, there are reasons, uh, both in terms of cognition and in terms of, you know, state-of-the-art technology, which will generate that creepy uh, feeling mm-hmm. in others. Mm-hmm. But there's no deliberate uh, attempt uh, with this artist to shock people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be an outcome, but that's not the intention. It's not the intention of this artist to harm this body. It's not the intention of this artist to shock an audience. Mm-hmm. Uh- so let me ask you then about the intention behind the third ear. <laughs> well, it was originally imaged as an ear on the side of my head. So if I turned in one in one direction, I would have one ear. But if I turned in the other direction, there would be two ears. Um, but this was not an anatomically safe place. And probably conceptually, it wasn't uh, the way to go either. But with uh, increasing uh, uh, communication with, with surgeons and medical practitioners, uh, with a further re- refinement conceptually of this idea of an extra ear, um, a safe location happened to be uh, on my arm, on on my forearm. There, the skin is uh, thin, flexible. Uh, in fact, that skin is very sensitive and very ear-like skin. So that was the location that was chosen in the end um, to construct the ear on my forearm, uh, but you know, the description of this project has been very misleading uh, and and embarrassingly for the artist, because any medical practitioner reading some of these descriptions would would say, "Well, this is nonsense medically and surgically." So how this was done was. The skin initially was expanded. Um, there was in, in, an inflating prosthesis that was inserted in my forearm. Uh, twice a week for two months, I in- self-injected with sterile saline solution. As the prosthesis fills with liquid, it stretches the skin, uh, producing a pocket of excess skin that can be that can assist in the construction of the ear. There were complications. I won't go into the, the complications at the moment. We can talk about those later if you want. Um, but um, uh, then uh, um, a scaffold uh, uh, sculpted out of biomaterial, so it's not my own cartilage, which was the initial intention, but that would have meant an additional surgery under general anesthesia to harvest cartilage from my thorax and uh, I just couldn't convince the surgeons who was assisting me to do that in addition. They said, well, look, there's biomaterial uh, that can be used for this. It's a porous biomaterial, so once it's 
inserted beneath the skin of the arm. Once the skin is suctioned over the scaffold, which provides the basic structure, over a period of six months, what this encourages is tissue ingrowth and vascularization uh, to occur. So this ear on my arm uh, is now part of my arm, physiologically part of my arm, and it has grown its own blood supply. <laughs> it's not removable. I did not stitch an ear on my arm. <laughs> I did not implant an ear in my arm. Uh, what has happened is that, or the best way of describing this ear is that it is partly surgically constructed, partly cell-grown. It's only a relief of an ear at the moment, but the plan is to lift the helix of the ear to construct a, an, a, an ear flap and to grow a soft earlobe mm -hmm. using my adult stem cells. When the ear is a fully three-dimensional structure, then we will reinsert the small microphone that used to be in the ear, mm -hmm. connected to a wireless transmitter and a microprocessor so that in any Wi-Fi hotspot, the ear becomes internet-enabled. So if you're in Toronto and I'm in, in Perth, you'll be able to listen in to what my ear is hearing or wherever you are, wherever I am uh, online. Very interesting. Now, you said there were complications, uh, and, and I know that, and I, I was, I've been planning to ask you because it seems you've been taking a substantial... You said the, the, the goal of this artist is not to harm this body, and yet you are taking certain serious risks occasionally, and as far as I know, you did have an infection at some point. So how do you balance these two? Well, of course, um, you try to plan adequately. Um, but there's a point in time when, uh, you know, all this planning and thinking has to stop and you have to try to actualize the idea. Now, this project was done with three excellent plastic surgeons. Um, so all precautions were, were taken. But, uh, for example, there's no guarantee uh, that a problem will not occur. The first problem occurred in the stretching of the skin. Um, I was in Melbourne at the time, and um, uh, the surgeon the surgeons who were assisting me were in the States. You know, one at the time came from uh, uh, Los Angeles, one from was one was from Pittsburgh, and the other one was um, uh, Austin, Texas. Um, so we communicated during this two-month of skin expansion, mm -hmm. uh, primarily by email, uh, and it seemed to be going okay. Uh, the skin would blanch um, when the injections were, were done, uh, but by lightly rubbing and, and also, if, uh, you know, minutes or hours later, the skin would regain its colour. But uh, in uh, towards the end of, of the skin expansion, 
uh, it seemed as if we uh, were doing it a little too rapidly. And uh, uh, one morning I woke up and instead of uh, uh, the skin looking blanched, uh, it darkened. About a, a dollar-sized uh, coin uh, in, um, that was about the size of that area. In fact, that patch of skin became necrotic. Mm-hmm. Wow. I had managed to kill off a part of my body. Wow. Now, of course, I quickly got in touch with the surgeons, and and um, uh, they they uh, everyone was very calm about it. And as long as that necrotic patch of skin stayed on my arm and didn't kind of pop off, uh, it was okay because soon we were going to proceed with the next surgical uh, 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 process. And um, anyway, fortunately, um, that was overcome, you know, in, in the second surgery where we actually constructed the uh uh the the uh, the ear inserting the scaffold uh they were able to excise that necrotic bit, bit of skin and uh stitch uh the ear into my arm or the ear scaffold I should say into my arm without any further problem mm-hmm. uh but um Several weeks after the second surgery, and partly due to the microphone that was uh, inserted into the ear construct, uh, an infection occurred. Now, you, it's not; it wasn't a rejection; <laughs> it was an infection. Every time you have a surgery in, in a hospital, yeah, and this was done, this is done in in a private clinic. There's a there's ten percent chance, a ten percent chance that you might uh, uh, have an infection of some sort. Uh-huh. So, and this turned out to be somewhat serious. I mean, I almost lost uh, an arm for an ear. Uh, certainly, I almost lost the ear construct. Uh, but fortunately, um, there was a colleague in Melbourne, uh, a colleague of, of, of one of the surgeons in Los Angeles who agreed to uh, try to retrieve the ear construct. Uh, I mean, I spent a, a week in hospital uh, every hour on the hour. My ear construct was flushed with sterile saline solution um, to try to flush out the, um, uh, the uh, infection. Uh, and for six months, I was on industrial strength antibiotics. And at the end of that period, had we not been successful in stabilizing the construct, it would have meant the end of the um, ear on arm project because the only way to guarantee removing uh, any infection would have been to have re- removed the construct altogether. Uh-huh. So... That's what how it unfolded. But of course, as I said, um, you don't do anything without uh, taking some kind of risk. But you try to plan things as adequately as you can, and then you do it. 
Well, clearly you've been willing to take a lot of risk because at some point you you probably would have been able to remove it, but you didn't want to abandon the project and lose the dear construct. So you're clearly willing to take risks <laughs> for your art and suffer the pain of flushing it on the hour and take industrial strength antibiotics for six months. So that says a lot, I think. I am an early adopter of technology myself. I, I build my own computers. Uh, you know, I install the latest uh, operating system when I can. I install the mm-hmm. latest programs. But when it comes to my body, I'm a total coward. I, I am absolutely scared to test anything unless it's been proven to be safe by many, many others before that. Even though I consider myself to be a transhumanist, uh, I, I am not an early adopter of biotech. So how do you square that early adopter risk? And you're not even early adopter. You're totally experimental. Uh, well, you know, I, I wouldn't expect uh, most people to um, to jeopardize their body in any way. And... and uh, I sincerely do not uh, uh, think that that's what I'm doing in these projects and performances. Um, I think you take a risk in anything you do. You know, you, you, you I mean, increasingly our bodies are accelerated, whether it's in personal machines or, 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 or or other or, or, or other or other bits of equipment um, our, our bodies are in jeopardy every time we get into a car we, we, we fly to another country um, accidents can happen mm-hmm. so um, I think the problem is, do you want to be risk aversive in, in everything you do? Um, yes, uh, and uh, I, I mean there have been instances where, of course, you can take every precaution that you can imagine. You can be a safe driver. You can. Well, I am not uh, risk averse to but, ev- everything I do, hmm. but my biology is like one of those things that I don't want to mess around. <laughs> yes. And, and, and I don't blame you. I, as I said, uh, this body does not, you know, uh, wish to jeopardize, you know, its, its very existence by doing something foolish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, I have to admit that my career has been a career of of failure. There's nothing that I've done that turns out exactly as I imagined it. But unless you take chances, unless you're operating in 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 a realm of of the unexpected, you're probably not doing something that's interesting. In 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 this case, it's with this particular body. In your case, it might be with your um, your technologies, uh, uh, with your your mode of operation in, and interaction with other people. Mm-hmm. I guess I lead a fairly 
normal personal existence, for example. <laughs> um, but uh, um, artistically, I'm challenged by certain ideas that I want to actualize. Mm-hmm. And if that means, you know, taking a, a physical risk, I do this, but only uh, within, you know, certain limitations. Mm-hmm. So let me try and wrap up this topic here with this question. Does this mean, do you think that the body is obsolete? In, in, in asserting the, the obsolescence of the body, I'm certainly not asserting the obsolescence of embodiment. You know, to be an intelligent agent, we have to be both embodied and embedded in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether we're embodied as carbon chemistry, soft tissue, muscle and bone bodies, or whether we're embodied as robots or as avatars, there needs to be some kind of embodiment and some kind of embeddedness in an interactive system for intelligence, uh, for operation and awareness to be generated. This body is obsolete in the sense that uh, with these limited functions, with this particular longevity, um, with this form, uh, with this carbon chemistry, with this necessity to gulp air, and with this necessity to have a beating heart. Um, in other words, whereas, where as much, as much an entity that generates its own death as experience its own live liveliness. I, I, I guess one thing that's fascinating is this idea of of what constitutes aliveness, aside from the particular medium of of embodiment. In other words, what vocabularies of behaviour would a human have, would a robot have, would an avatar have to uh, 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 to be experienced as an alive, responsive, uh, capable of, 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 of acting upon un- unpredictable uh, and, and changing circumstances. Um, that's what's intriguing, not necessarily that it has to happen in a human body. Uh, how might it happen in machines? I mean, if a machine is soft to the touch, if it looks human, if it speaks appropriately, if it has all, all of the social mores and graces, um, if it can, if it can uh, uh, communicate with me effectively, do I need to, to, to cut open its head 
to 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 uh, uh, to indicate whether it's alive or not, or whether it's you know a biological entity or a machine entity. There'll be a point in time where it will no longer be meaningful to ask whether this uh, intelligent entity is either biological or machinic, just as much as we don't like to uh, 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 distinguish between a young body or an old body or a or or a a body of a different race or uh i mean to be a a body of a different embodiment will no longer be be meaningful either mm-hmm. um so it generates interesting aesthetics but also ethical issues of concern uh at what level of inter- intelligent interactivity might a machine be considered, you know, at the same level as, 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 as a human body and have the same rights and have the same, uh, social and political expectations? Uh, they're interesting issues to, to, to consider. It, it also brings me to my next question, which is, what's your take on the technological singularity? Okay. Uh, well, I, I, I also think that the singularity is, is a most seductive and uh, uh, and uh, kind of logical or rational projection of a particular state of information and, and technological uh, 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 um, uh, technological experiences that we now have. Um, as I said, if someone's trying to convince me that the singularity uh, is either a necessity or an absolute eventuality, I would have to be skeptical. Well, Werner Vinci says the- that uh, falling short of any major global catastrophe like nuclear uh, uh, war, for example... The chan- he he thinks that chances are within the next twenty or thirty years we are likely, very likely, almost guaranteed, sh- falling short of that, you know, catastrophe to actually live in, in, and see, experience that event. Look, I, I don't think. Um, well, well, of course, uh, in 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 kind of a, the singularity is seductive because it seemingly um, will come at a certain point in time uh, and will happen very quickly and will will be an eventuality that, to a certain degree, I'm trying to articulate this in a way that uh, uh, I'm as much a part of this process of exploring uh, new hybridities of mm-hmm. bodies, machines, and virtual systems. Absolutely. Um, but 
if we only, unless we, unless we ignore history altogether, unless we ignore history altogether, what's, what's always been the case has been unexpected developments, you know, not necessarily catastrophic ones, mm-hmm. but unexpected incremental developments which will uh, always shift and alter the ratios of interactivity between uh, bodies and machines and, 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 and ins- instruments and computers. Um, the future will be a boring place if the singularity is the outcome in the way that it is now speculated because I would hope that uh, the future will generate unexpected data, unexpected technologies, unexpected outcomes. Um, and if the past is any predictor, then chances are we would have that unexpectedness occur. Well, well yes, but I, again, I, I don't necessarily... Uh, I want to be open to that as well. I don't necessarily say, well, hey, this is really not going to happen because the future is unexpected. I, mean, no, I don't want to say that because, you know, all, all the data we now have, uh, the, the exponential uh, quickening uh, of, 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 of computer processing uh, uh, power and speed, everything points to um, some very, very kind of, Dramatic unfoldings in in relationships between bodies and machines, um, but does this happen in a kind of sci-fi dystopian scenario where suddenly machines take over, or an artificial intelligence is generated that uh, Makes bodies uh, completely um, uh, 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 completely meaningless in 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 the kind of uh, in 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 our meanings of 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 of, of life and 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 um, on on this planet. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Mm-hmm. I'd like, uh, and also, uh, it's not a scary scenario for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a scary scenario. I think with every new technology, as Paul Virilio would say, there's a new kind of accident. But that's okay. Uh, uh, it's in accidents that, that, that we generate new possibilities. It's in failures that we see the possibilities of, of alternate uh, uh, outcomes. So... Uh, Yes, I'm as much seduced by the singularity as as any person interested in technology would be. Do I think it's an imperative? It's something that happens of necessity? I'm not sure about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would like to imagine that what uh, uh, transhumanists, and, and and people propagating ideas of the singularity are doing are generating contestable futures, mm-hmm. contestable futures 
um, that can that that can be examined. That that as I said, most likely will be discarded. Sometimes certain ideas, certain outcomes will be appropriated, but we should always be open to possibilities and certainly factor in contingency mm-hmm. as part of that interactive system of possibilities that we're generating now with, uh, within the technological terrain that we now inhabit. But, of course, it's quite apparent that as this terrain of technology becomes more complex, we should not be scared of increasing surveillance and a proliferation of constraints and controls because we will not be able to safely navigate this very complex and and meaningfully, safely and meaningfully navigate this more complex terrain of of technological operation without these increasing uh, uh, um, uh, constraints and and conditions. Mm -hmm. Uh, The usual... Two questions that I ask at the end of every interview that I do are the following. The first one is, where can people find more about you and your work? <laughs> well, there's, there's not a, a lot of literature. Um, MIT Press, I think in 2005, produced a, 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 a publication. Um, it's just titled Stellark, the Monograph. But don't be fooled by the subtitle. It's actually a collection of essays um, with diverse critiques of the artist's work. They're not all positive. Mm-hmm. We chose them and we invited people uh, because we, we knew that they would provide um, a, a very different uh, 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 evaluation of, of, of what this artist is doing. Um, yeah, there's... My, my website, uh, stellark.org, www.stellark.org.org. And, uh, you're met with a blank, uh, page. Don't be fooled on the right hand, bottom right hand corner. If you click on, on the text, it'll flip over, uh, pages and you'll get to the, uh, projects and performances and then you can click to particular uh, works that you might be interested in. Um, so, yeah, and, 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 and there have been other books written that my work has been a part of. Um, the Parables of the Virtual by Brian Masumi. There's a chapter on my work there which covers both an, an examination of the suspension performances into the, um, into the uh, uh, work with the third hand. Um, Joanna Zielinska has published several books that have included my works as well. So, yeah, not, not a lot of stuff, uh, but um, certainly if you Google the internet, you'll you'll be able to find uh, articles and, and the publications and authors that I mentioned who've, uh, who, who, who've done uh, particular critiques on, on my work. And there's lots of video clips of 
your past performances and, and lectures and, and, and presentations by you, which I highly recommend. And, and of course, embarrassingly so. <laughs> because, of course, uh, some of those, uh, well, some of those video clips, of course, are taken by someone with an iPhone at the back of the room and the quality is not so great. Uh, some of them, of course, uh, you know, have been posted by myself or institutions or museums and, and they are of a better quality. Of course, some go back a long time and, um, I've probably said things that I've regretted. <laughs> but of course, uh, you know, part of being open to new ideas and new, new possibilities, of course, means that, uh, you do adjust your thoughts, uh, you do, you know, extend and unfold and unpack uh, uh, initial ideas that uh, were fairly rudimentary and need further explanation or need further clarification. So, yeah, but it, it, it and sometimes actually you're critiqued uh by people who cite works that were produced by an artist in his early 20s. <laughs> <laughs> and being now uh, 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 67 years old, um, I would have changed, extended and uh, adjusted a lot of those initial ideas. Although, of course, you can see where I was coming from mm -hmm. um, in those early early interviews or early early clips. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this. We've been talking with <laughs> you for about an hour and ten minutes now. <laughs> Is there one thing that you would like that people take away more than anything else from this interview with you? What's the most important message that you want to send out? Well, well, I, I guess it's not not a message, but 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 I guess there is a, a um, um, an articulation of what's happening now. Um, I think we are in a time of circulating flesh, where the blood in my body might be circulating in your body tomorrow, if you're O positive, where an organ from this body might be operational uh, and animating uh, someone else's body where we can stitch the limbs from cadavers onto other bodies and manipulate them and, and manipulate with them where a skin cell from a, 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 an impotent male can be engineered into a sperm cell, and more interestingly, a skin cell from a female body might become a sperm cell, <laughs> which would sort of, <laughs> males would be out of the reproductive loop. Um, but not only are we in a realm of circulating flesh, but we're also in a realm of fractal flesh and phantom flesh, where bodies and bits of bodies spatially separated but electronically connected can generate recurring patterns of interactivity at varying scales. And also, I can perform 
as my avatar, and especially now with the proliferation of haptic devices, there'll be a more potent physical presence of that avatar and of remote bodies elsewhere. Um, so this, this age of circulating flesh, fractal flesh, and phantom flesh is a realm that we have to now manage and inhabit. Um, uh, look, uh, about a year and a half ago, the first, the first, uh, 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 turbine heart was inserted into a body. Now, a turbine heart is interesting because it's much smaller, uh, much more robust and reliable than previous artificial hearts. And it doesn't and, have a pulse, I think. And it doesn't have a pulse. So in the future, you might put your head on your loved one's chest. They're warm to the touch. They're breathing. They're certainly alive, but they have no heartbeat. So um, this this kind of act, this prosthetic implant, you know, would radically redefine what a body is and how a body operates. Our body has these rhythms, these uh, uh, beats, these circadian brain waves. Uh, uh, but perhaps, you know, future bodies may not uh, function in, in the same sort of rhythmic ways that our bodies function now with the same hormonal ebb and flows or adrenal ebbs and flows. These, this might generate new kinds of uh, more stable and robust bodies, but they also might, might engineer bodies that don't have the emotions that we associate with, with being human. Does this worry me? Not necessarily. It would certainly be interesting to be a body without a heartbeat, to be a body that doesn't have circadian uh, uh, brain waves, uh, that that a body doesn't scream and shout, that a body doesn't flush red and 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 become aggressive and angry. On the other hand, uh, we might poetically justify these emotional ebbs and flows with our creative input. I don't necessarily accept that as a premise. Um, and, and I'm sure that machines will be equally as creative, but hopefully in unexpected and, and very different ways. <laughs> Still, Eric, thank you so much for being with us today. Okay, thanks a lot and really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you.